This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. This week, a big series starts on the ABC, Magda's Big National Health Check. It's hosted by, you guessed it, Magda Zabanski. She's been looking at all different aspects of what's been driving poor health in Australia and what needs to be done about it. Let's have a quick listen to what she's been finding. I know that I have a fortunate life. In many respects, it's a great life. But that doesn't mean that I haven't got my challenges. You know, there are times in my life that have been absolutely blighted by illness. Osteoarthritis, migraines, anxiety. I also suffer from sleep apnea. I go to sleep each night looking like Darth Vader. Over the years, I've worked out quite a few tricks to keep this old jalopy on the road. But a few times, my illnesses have sent me to the emergency ward. I can't help wondering if things could be better for me. And that leads me to ask, am I the only one who feels like this? You know, are other people feeling the same way? Do they have the same sorts of challenges? Well, according to the latest research, the answer is yes. The extraordinary fact is that today, half the country suffers from one or more long-term illness. And yeah, you heard that right. That is one out of every two people, which means that if you're not in that statistic, then someone that you love and care about is. With so many of us unwell, I want to see how it's impacting our health system. So I'm heading to the front line. We've all heard about the crisis in our hospitals, the shortage of beds and health workers, and the burden of COVID. But how much are long-term illnesses adding to the strain? So Magda's big national health check is playing on Tuesday nights on ABC television at 8.30, and we've got Magda with us. And I suppose we should start off by doing this in a Scottish accent, Magda. Okay, and and Tegan uh, and, and can hold her wrist and we'll carry on like that. We will. Uh, can uh, I participate? My <laughs> Scottish accent's vile. Yeah, well, Magda's yeah, no, mum... Don't, please. Yeah, Magda's <laughs> mummy was from Scotland. I mean, before we get to Australia, I mean, both of us were afflicted, I suppose, with one of the worst diets in the world, which is the Scottish diet. <laughs> oh, yeah, my mum was... Uh, yeah, she was. her plate would be potatoes with a little bit of meat and a little bit of vegetables. That was pretty much what it was. But, uh, yeah, Scotland, the home of the deep-fried Mars bar, so there you go. I've never seen one, but they they do talk about it. So, Magda, you got into this, and it's clear that you were shocked with what you found. Yeah, I was approached by the producer, and my first question was, you know, why me? And she said, well, you know, because you're someone who's on that journey rather than someone who's completed it. And, uh, and I completely was on board with that. I'm quite happy to be the, the every person going along. But there was a lot of stuff, like just the extent of chronic illness was really quite quite shocking to me. Um, I mean, I know I have those issues. And, I mean, I'm 61, you, you, you know, you, you start getting some of that stuff. But, but the extent of it throughout the population was really um, pretty shocking. But the other thing that was very eye-opening for me were the external factors, um, that it's, you know... I've always tend to look at, tended to look at it from a, the lens of, like, it's my fault, I should this, I should that. 
um, and I've tried to certainly um, because, you know, talking to Dr. Sandra DeMeo, who's the CEO of Vic Health, um, it's clear that quite a few of the chronic illnesses can be prevented. Um, but what we're looking at in the show are the external societal factors that make it actually hard for individuals. And you, you could point the finger at the individual, um, as Richard Glover was saying before, like, you, you know, if it was just if it was just the odd one of us, but given that it's a, it's a thing that's sweeping across the OECD, but particularly in Australia, we're the second worst, then you've got to say it's a, it's a national failing. It's not just a few individuals having a failure of will and discipline. Um, clearly something's going on in the system. No, and in fact, the obesity, so-called obesity epidemic, probably only started in the 60s with the globalisation mm. of food and the available of cheap, worthless calories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think sort of digging into that and and kind of, it's not a thing of, you know, I, I never expect the government to, to be the nanny state and do everything for me, but by the same token, there are some things like when it comes to mandatory regulation, which we talk about a lot in the second episode, that you, you have to have the government on board because the food industry is just unwilling to do it voluntarily. Well, it's about giving people the true choices. So if you, if you want to give people yeah. a free choice, there's got to be an easy choice that's also a healthy choice, not just the easiest choice always being the less, the less healthy. Well, as we all know, knowledge is power. And so if you're talking about freedom... Um, if you've got a situation where people are, you know, you really need to have a magnifying glass and a degree in nutrition and, and, and diet, uh, diet, be a dietitian to decipher, to even be able to read because it's so tiny, the stuff that's on the back of, of um, packets now. But, but also, you know, they're trying to sort of organic wash so many things. So it'll say pure organic or it'll have all those sorts of names on it. And so you go to it or it'll say sugar-free, um, except that it's loaded with concentrated fruit juice um, or it's sometimes so, so ultra-processed, it's not even anything that resembles a real food. It's just deconstructed into its component parts and then made in a laboratory. And then because the original parts are, are organic, it's sold to you as organic. Now, that, to me, is like trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. I don't think that's fair. Mm. And so labelling is one of these these topics that you've just brought up and we've actually got two experts on the line now to sort of talk through this in some detail along with some of the other big structural changes that might help flip things to, to the part where the healthy choice is the easy choice. We've got Alexandra Jones from the George Institute and Catherine Backholer from Deakin University. Welcome, Ali and Catherine. Thank you. Good afternoon. Alexandra, we might start with you. In terms of regulation around healthy and unhealthy food, what, what are we seeing at the moment and why isn't it serving us? Yeah, well, I think one good point to make is that it's not that radical to use a, uh, food regulation to protect health. I mean, Magda's just raised the point there about the nanny state, but it's not really the nanny state. When you think about food safety and all the regulations we have that pretty much make it very rare to get sick overnight, from what we eat in Australia. But most of us are now dying from these oh, long-term yeah. conditions that we've been talking about. So we need to move past sort of voluntary codes and things we've done there to implement real regulations. Um, Labelling is the one that uh, Magda just raised. And I think the show is going to touch on some important changes to sugar labelling that are coming. Um, the other missed opportunity in Australia um, is the health star rating, um, which uses an algorithm to score food overall. Um, 
that algorithm could probably be improved further, but the main issue with it is that it's voluntary. So companies are just not showing it where foods get a low rating and that makes it consumers can't actually make a good choice. It's not, you're actually not being able to compare apples with apples or probably in this case, not apples at all. Catherine, if, if you're there, can you talk about the, the role of how money really talks when it comes to uh, getting people to buy and also getting companies to do the right thing? Um, so, I mean, I'll talk about the price and affordability of, um, of foods and we know that, you know, price matters. It's the number one driver of, of why people purchase foods, yet unhealthy foods are often cheaper than the healthier options. Um, and so, you know, talking about, I know you started with structural changes and what needs to happen to our food systems, um, yet one in four Australians indicate that grocery shopping is a financial stress since the pandemic. So we need to think about ways of how we make healthy diets affordable, especially for those um, on lower incomes that can, you know, spend up to a third of their incomes on, on um, food. Magda, you um, Catherine, talk. It's, it's, yeah, go. Yeah, oh, sorry, it's Mag, Magda here. Just, um, uh, I've had people coming back at me online saying, oh, well, you know, why don't fruit, fruit and vegetables are cheap? Why are you going to, to get these processed foods? But actually, fruits and vegetables aren't cheap at the moment. You know, to get those, you know, it's one thing to say don't buy the packaged food, then you, don't, then you can avoid the labels. But given the, the floods that are happening and all of that, getting that fresh produce is actually not nearly so easy. Oh, that's right. We know that fruit and veg, fruit and vegetables have gone up 7% over and above inflation since the start of the pandemic, and it's the highest price rise of any category. So, you know, we do have a GST that's free um, of tax on fruit and veg. We need to make sure we keep it that way. Um, but then we need supports throughout the whole food system to make sure that we're resilient to these shocks, food system shocks. We, we're going to have more um, floods, more hurricanes, more bushfires that will um, push our fruit and vegetable prices up. So we need measures in place to make our food systems resilient to these price increases. Ali, you've looked at uh, whether subsidising fruit and veg could be one approach. Yeah, definitely. Um, we know that it's the combination of policies together that will make the most incomes, uh, make the most difference. So there has been a lot of focus on taxing unhealthy products and certainly a tax on sugary drinks is something that 54 other countries have done. So I would expect it to come back on Australia's radar at some point and hopefully we'll catch up. But ideally, you would have a combination of making the unhealthy foods more expensive and making the healthy foods like fruit and vegetables cheaper at the same time. Catherine mentioned they're not included in the GST, but we could, for example, use taxes on unhealthy products to make the healthier products even cheaper. Magda, oh, one, of the you did as oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> one of the things you did as part of this show is you went out and you talked to people in places like Mansfield in Victoria, I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. What yeah. were people there telling you about what they were doing in terms of just making their weekly shop affordable? Well, they had a fantastic project, which is that um, people who are growing their own fruit and vegetables, you know, whenever you do your own little veggie patch, you always have excess. And so what they do is that just local to have excess, bring it into what's a so-called market, but it's actually free. So people who need fruit and veg can go and get it from this market from the excess that's produced by locals. So, you know, that seems to me an incredibly um, simple uh practical solution that a local community has come up in conjunction with local council, local government, but also Deakin University, Steve Allender was involved with that project. And it's very much coming from the from the from the ground up. Like it's not something that's imposed top down on the community. 
But I just wanted to ask Ali also, um, when I did go and speak to Mark, but- Mark Butler, um, he sort of said no to the idea of a sugar tax. Do you know, do you know why that is? Why the government's so reluctant? Uh, I haven't spoken to Mark Butler, but I know that historically mm. in Australia we have a big relationship with the sugar industry um, and there are certainly some areas where sugar is grown in Australia, um, in Queensland and New South Wales, where there are politically sensitive seats. Um, so that, I think mm. that's something that has kept it a little bit um, off the agenda for a while. But I would say now we have the benefit of countries like the UK and more recent countries that have done this and shown really good evidence that it works. They've really been developing the, the policy setting, so we know now what would what would work best and definitely targeting the companies to make them change their behaviour. So in the UK, um, you have a higher rate of tax if you've got more than 8% sugar in your drinks. And what happened really quickly was that companies just cut the sugar out of those drinks. Um, so that doesn't really matter what individuals do. There's just less sugar for sale in the UK. And I think if we do smart policies like that, it's, it's something the government shouldn't exclude as a possibility. Is that what Mark Butler told you, Magda? Um, he said that there was pushback. He, he just wouldn't sort of get into the sugar tax discussion. And, of course, you know, we do have to balance up all the interests on this, like how it's going to affect farmers, how it's going to affect everyone. Um, my understanding was that when the sugar taxes were introduced, it didn't um, negatively affect the, the producers. But, you know, that's something that, that I think has to be teased out. Um, and we've got to weigh up the, the all the... the pros and cons of all of this because it's it's clearly costing us also a lot of money with people getting these chronic illnesses as a consequence of overconsumption of sugar. Catherine, where in the world is doing this really well? Um, well, sugar taxes, there's over 50 countries in the world now that are taxing sugary drinks. Um, Mexico was really the leader in 2014, um, but since then, Chile, Thailand, um, UK, South Africa, Peru, many, many different countries, and the evidence is showing that it works. So, for example, in Mexico, two years post-implementation of the tax, 10% tax, there was a 10% reduction in the purchase of sugary drinks. So many countries doing it and really showing the evidence that it works now. When will we see whether that has a knock-on effect to the health effects, which is really what this is all about? Yeah, it is what it's all about. But I think we need to remember that a sugary drinks tax is not a silver bullet and we need many different strategies in place to really have an impact on population health um, and overweight. Um, so, for example, we need to protect children from unhealthy food marketing. Our children are absolutely bombarded every single day as they go about their daily lives, their digital lives with junk food ads, which really shape their preferences and social norms. Um, so we need, you know, we need restrictions. We've got so and independent MP Sophie Scumps, who's putting forward a private member's bill next year. So it's a step forward. Um, we need to make foods more affordable. We need to increase income supports. There's many, many different things we need to do to really see impacts on population health. Well, the other thing that uh, I keep having people coming back to me saying is, well, surely it's just the individual's responsibility. You know, why can't individuals just make that decision whether they do or don't want to have sugar? Um, is that... Where do you, where do, um, Catherine and Ali, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I um, go back to I what mean, you I said think at the, the end of the day, people need to choose what they eat. They need to choose how much they eat, what they eat. But they can do that in two environments. They can do it in an environment that promotes health and promotes children's health, or they can do it in the environment we currently have that's really set up by a junk food industry that spends millions of dollars marketing to our children every year um, and that really make it um, hard to choose healthy choices. Really? 
Ali, your mm. thoughts? No, oh, I think Catherine just hit the nail on the head. It was about it was exactly what I was going to say. And, and that's what Magda said at the beginning. It's really, we're operating in a really unhealthy environment. And our choices are currently really influenced by people who have profits and not health as their primary interest. Magda, what's the big call to action, without too many spoilers, because the show hasn't started yet, but what's the big call to action at the end of your investigations? Well, um, I wrote a letter to my local member um, just to express my concern about mandatory labelling because I think that really is a no-brainer. I can see that there are more complex issues around sugar tax, but I think we should be having very serious conversations about that. But I wrote a letter to my local member and um, got a response saying, yeah, we're, we're you know, we're, ke- we're keeping our, our eye on that stuff. But we're not really doing anything just at the moment or not prepared to. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing, I suppose the thing for me is that whether it's the government that introduces it or individuals who start making that choice, the consumption of sugar will, presumably as people understand more, um, it will decrease. So that's going to happen anyway, but probably having... Um, a bit more knowledge and, and um, um, being more informed about it is, is better for the community. But So, yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing. If people are feeling concerned in that same way, if we can generate that sort of conversation and also uh, let, it, let politicians know that this is something that we care about, I think that could potentially have an impact. Mm, and the research seems to bear it out as well. Um, Ali and Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Dr Thank Alexandra you. Jones is a public health lawyer and researcher at the George Institute. Associate Professor Catherine Backholer is a National Heart Foundation Future Leader Research Fellow and Co-Director of the Global Centre for Preventative Health and Nutrition at Deakin University. Magda, thanks so much for coming along too. Um, so this is Magda's big national health check. What, Tuesday night at half past eight? Is that what it is? But, yep, starts with November 1st, half past eight. Thank you so much for having me yeah, on. Thanks for coming on. And, and thanks for coming on, Magda. It was Magda Zubanski. Cheerio. Cheerio. Well, goodbye Cheerio for now. Then. We'll see you later. Hen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's Magda. The exiting stage left. You're listening to The Health Report. The latest statistics on causes of death in Australia show that deaths caused by alcohol rose by 6% last year. For some of the alcohol-related conditions, the levels were the highest for about 10 years. This is avoidable. It's like a lot of the conversation you've just heard. It's also market failure. And in fact, advocates for greater alcohol control measures have been warning for years that we're not doing enough to prevent harm. Katrina Georgi is Chief Executive of FAIR, the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education. Welcome to the Health Report, Katrina. Thanks for having me, Norman. So just sort out the stats for us. I mean, these are alcohol-induced deaths, but they're also alcohol-attributable deaths. What are we talking about here? So what we heard from the ABS with the release of this report is that alcohol-induced deaths, so that's deaths where alcohol is the cause, have increased two years in a row now and are at the highest that they've been in 10 years. So that means that 1,600 people alcohol caused death in the last year. But obviously that's only a really small part of the picture. When we look at alcohol attributable deaths, so that's all deaths that are related to alcohol, then 6,000 people die each year from that. And this is a real cause for concern because this uptick is, as you said, something that we can be preventing. And it's the second year in a row. 
That's right. So we saw an increase last year of 8% and an increase this year of 6%. And so what we need to understand now is why that's happening. And we've seen similar trends in the UK and the US as well. So is this COVID? Well, these are, that's one of the theories. So there are two reasons that people are exploring at the moment. And one is that for people who were drinking at risky levels, there's a theory that they were then drinking more, uh, which accelerated, um, you know, conditions like alcohol-related liver disease. And the second is that people weren't able to access the sorts of supports that you normally access and people were reluctant to go to places like emergency departments if they needed help. And of course, Norman, on top of that, we also have to look at the behaviours and the actions of alcohol companies and retailers because we saw alcohol retail sales increase from $12 billion to $15 billion from before the pandemic to a year after the pandemic. So I just want to question whether it is... So you, obviously people were buying more alcohol, but alcohol-related liver disease takes many years to develop. Alcohol-related cancer and heart disease take many years to develop. It's not something that happens in a year of a pandemic. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And so these are the types of conditions that take many years to develop. And this is why we see a lot of these deaths happening for people who are age 50 and over. So is this the straw that broke the camel's back, that you had a group of... With these increases, the question is, what kind of behaviours have accelerated this? And if someone is drinking at chronic levels over a short period of time, even more so than they were before, then it can mean that those deaths are brought on earlier or it can mean that um, they didn't have those help-seeking behaviours because this wasn't a trend that we would normally see. This was a significant uptick. So there's something that's accelerated those deaths. You've, did, you've looked at the, the industry and it's very data-driven, isn't it? Well, this is the big thing now. So what we saw in the first weekend after the pandemic hit was that credit card sales around alcohol increased by 86%. And that just made me feel sick to my stomach because I just think about the impact that this has on families and communities across Australia. The way that people are purchasing alcohol now is very different. People are purchasing alcohol online Uh, Online deliveries have increased exponentially and there are a lot more companies which can now deliver alcohol to people's homes within 30 minutes. So companies have more data on people than ever before. And if you think about this, Norman, in the same way that you think about if you buy a book online, what happens then is that you get targeted with advertising telling you to buy similar books. Now, if you apply this to an addictive product like alcohol, what that means is that People who may have a problem with alcohol, who are purchasing lots of alcohol, will therefore be targeted with more advertising for alcohol. And we just don't have the right checks and balances in place to stop that from happening. So what checks and balances should be in place? I mean, you and others have spoken about about the fact that we don't tax alcohol in the way we might tax tobacco. We don't tax alcohol by the amount of alcohol in a drink. We, we, we're one of the few countries that don't. Yeah, you know, the product that's um, increasing in sales the most is wine, and that is not taxed based upon alcohol content. That's taxed based upon the cost of the product. So, the Which is why South Australian members of parliament don't support the change in, um, in taxation, no matter what party they belong to. 
Well, this is the trickiness of the politics of this. Um, so companies make decisions that prioritise profits. And we saw that during the pandemic. We, we analysed 100 ads in an hour uh, on one night early on in the pandemic and found that, you know, three quarters of them referenced COVID. And they were saying things like, get your ISO pack with a bottle of wine a day to get you through the 14 days of isolation. These sorts of things. You know, if we're actually focusing on people's health, then we'd have good controls over marketing. We'd have alcohol price based upon its alcohol content. We'd not allow data on whether someone has looked at an alcohol rehabilitation centre um, being able to be sold to people. Uh, this, these sorts of things contribute to more harm. Hold on a second. And governments have the choice to change this. If you've searched looking for alcohol rehab, you then get marketed, they sell you alcohol? Is that what you're saying? Well, there's some data um, from the United States that shows that people can be tagged as having searched for alcohol rehab. You know, there was a report that came out recently that showed that you could purchase a thousand children, so that's kids aged up to 17 data, tagged as being interested in alcohol and other drugs uh, for $3. So this is happening online. People are getting, data's being collected on them all of the time and they're being targeted alcohol products and for people who are vulnerable and for people for children this is particularly problematic so what's a government to do about that well we need to have the right privacy controls in place and we need to treat these addictive products uh, as different we need to make sure that data can't be used to target people in this way and we need to look more broadly at um, digital marketing, um, everything from whether we should be restricting uh, types of marketing through to whether there should be uh, a ban on this type of digital marketing as well. Because by its very nature, this marketing is set up and it's data-driven. So the only way that we can prevent this from happening is to restrict the advertising products like alcohol and gambling. When you talk to the industry, they say, oh, well, you know, we spend money on education. We'll teach people to drink less. But there's not a shred of evidence that education works, is there? Well, what happens is you might be in a classroom and you might get that 30 minutes of education, but then you go out into the world. And the world is one where there's a bottle shop on every corner, where alcohol is marketed relentlessly, where you're being targeted because of your vulnerabilities where alcohol is sold as cheap uh, in some circumstances um, as, you know, 50 cents standard drink. These sorts of things then tell you that it's okay, that it's normal, that, you know, if there was actually a problem with this, governments would do something about it. So education can't penetrate through that. It can't penetrate through the many millions of dollars that alcohol companies spend telling you that the way to get through a day is to have a drink. And just finally, this is now these days a problem of the over 50s. Yeah, what we saw was that uh, people who were drinking at risky levels who are now into that age group are continuing to drink at risky levels. I think certainly, though, there are people who drink at risky levels across the population. And we have, you know, one in 10 drinkers in the country who uh, meet the criteria for an alcohol use disorder. We'll come so back. this is something we need to do more about. Well, we'll certainly come back to it. Katrina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Norman. Katerina Georgi is Chief Executive of FAIR, the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education. Quite a similar theme between the two stories, really. So much overlap there. Yeah. I mean, the thing here is, 
that um, we talk about, you know, the nanny state and everything else, is that the market has failed. And the market has failed to provide a safe environment for alcohol. And it's failed to provide a safe environment for food. And we've got an obesity epidemic. We've got an epidemic of chronic disease. And the market ain't going to solve it. Um, it's actually up to government. When market fails, such as in healthcare and education, it's government's got to step in. And mostly it's actually the federal government. State governments don't have much to go on. Anyway, off my soapbox. <laughs> That's been the health report for this week. We'll see you next week. We will. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.